You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Music lovers, and welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and here are my co-hosts, Anthony. Greetings. And Rob. Hello. This past weekend was the annual Glastonbury Festival, the first one back in a couple of years. And we're going to be talking about that. First, though, let's do our shout-outs. What have you guys been listening to, reading, watching? What's been what's been on your mind this week? Rob, I'm gonna you want to punt it us? to Rob to start, yeah. <laughs> oh, lovely. Okay, so um, first, there's a there's a band. If you haven't heard of them yet, you will soon. They're called Mama. They are kind of like they're going to be as as big as Wet Leg soon, if not already. They're on Polyvinyl Records. They have an album called Household Name. Uh, they're going to be touring with Snail Mail, and they're making the rounds. And the record's fantastic. Um, it's kind of like a female pavement or a female Nirvana kind of thing. Um, it's not really mm. grungy, but it's a really good indie rock, all girl indie rock band. Uh, also automatic, uh, and excess, uh, Kevin Haskins from Bauhaus tones on tail and love and rockets. His daughter is in that band and, uh, they finally released their album. They're going to tour finally, which they had a tour all lined up, but the pandemic kind of pushed everything back. It's really, really interesting. It kind of sounds like the records Warpaint used to make before they got mellow. Um, also my reigning, uh, my reigning stars. So if you like shoegaze or dream pop, uh, they have an album called 89 memories. It's just kind of a nice breezy album. If it's too hot to go outside. And, uh, finally, you know, I finally got around to listening to this, uh, this record by the smile, which is Johnny mm -hmm. Greenwood and, uh, Tom York from Radiohead. I had heard, you know, a couple of the tracks that were released kind of as one-off tracks when they came out, but mm -hmm. I haven't really gotten to delve into the album yet. And, um, it, it came this week, so I listened to it, and it's it's much more of a um, an al surprise. It's much more of an album piece as it is a collection of songs, but it is much more interesting than I thought it would be. It kind of sounds more like Radiohead used to used to. So if you really like sort of like your old experimental Radiohead, that's for you. And um, Tom York is Tom York without being too much Tom York, if that makes sense. It's it's interesting. His vo vocals are interesting, but it's not too far out there that it's like, what the hell is this, right? So I do want to recommend that as well. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Anthony, welcome back from merry old England. Thank you. How it's was good. your trip? My trip was wonderful. I ate too much, drank too much, didn't sleep enough, saw some good friends, just generally had a lot of fun. Um, that sounds amazing. Yes, it's so been a recovery have, process. Yeah. Did so. you have time to listen to anything this week? Yes. So while I was over there, two albums by two of my very favorite bands <laughs> were dropped on exactly the same day, June 24th. Um, so I'm going to take what is probably the lesser of those first, and that's not to say that it's a good album. I, They've just had a lot more output over the last... 12 years in the second band. So that first band is Ailstorm, my favorite yep. pirate metalers. 
who dropped their latest <laughs> album, Seventh Rum of a Seventh Rum. Oh, that's awesome. Which is obviously a play on Iron Maiden's Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. And um, they, they've been dropping some singles for a little while. Um, you know, I think they dropped three, uh, including the amazingly titled P-A-R-T-Y. Um, <laughs> but the thing about Ailstorm is they don't take themselves seriously. Their songs are very silly. They're a lot of fun. Some people say the joke's wearing thin, but I don't know. Maybe I'm a little immature and still love pirates, but it's still funny. It's still enjoyable. It's an absolute blast to listen to and not ever something to be taken too seriously. So that was a great, great listen. But... 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 (laughs) And I think... Anyone who's been listening to the show for a long time knows how excited I was back in November when out of the blue, after I'd said, you know, I'd really like this band to reform, within a week, they had. Right. And that's Porcupine Tree. And they dropped their latest album, Closure Continuation, which was their first studio album since 2009. And it's been worth the wait. Yeah, You know, often with that kind of thing, there's the weight of anticipation. A lot of people feel like the the that just builds and builds and builds to, an, to a level that can just never be satisfied. But I think they knocked it out of the park. It's interesting because it sounds like Porcupine Tree, but equally it sounds like nothing they've done before. There are some nice little callbacks to previous albums. Some of the guitar reminds me of Voyage 34. Some of it reminds me of Fear of a Blank Planet. They've done a lot of callbacks, but equally built something new based on those. And it's been so good. Even having heard four of the seven tracks as singles, Mm -hmm. the remaining three plus the three bonus tracks. By the way, sorry, tangent here. Does anyone remember when you used to have to wait a few months before you got the deluxe edition with the bonus tracks? Yes. Now it just hits immediately. Yeah. I, I don't know. I kind of like that because you don't end up buying the album twice, but it's also it doesn't a bit strange seem like a, because it doesn't seem a smarter marketing ploy. On I was going to ask why why not just label them as right parts of the album if you're just going to drop it at the same time as the album? But Ex- yeah, exactly. The it three could be bonus- a label thing. More than a band thing. It could. Uh, Wilson does uh, yeah. it a lot, though. And yeah. from what he said in interviews, Music for Nations gave them a lot of leeway on how they marketed this and how they did things. So mm. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a Wilson thing of, I want to put the bonus, the, the deluxe edition out immediately. Yeah. Um, because I think he, as much as he does all of the gorgeous gorgeous remasters of other people's work he's not a fan of forcing people to buy his work again and again and again three months after it was released right so but i go a little bit off track but i think of the singles i rate harridan really highly that was the first one the full album version of herd culling is probably my favorite track on the album there's a really nice bridge in the middle of that track that is just been going round and round and round and round in my head for about nine days now and then from the bonus tracks the final one love in the past tense is just phenomenal i cannot even properly articulate how fantastic and how enjoyable i found this album and how 
excited I am to hear it in its entirety, not all at once, though, because they're going to intersperse it with songs from other albums, but to hear mm-hmm. every song from this when I see them at Radio City Music Hall in September. I've been listening to it a lot, too, so that's going to be my shout-out as well. Um, and of the four singles, I heard the the first two, Harridan and Of the New Day. Um, I don't think I ever really listened. I know I listened one time, I think, to Herd Culling, but I don't think I was even aware of Rat's Return coming out as a single. So then that's the the first three tracks basically were singles two of them i'd heard already and i absolutely love them especially harridan um when i was listening to it again today uh when i was playing the album through the thing that stood out to me was the the drumming on that song is just phenomenal and of course that's gavin harrison who is just one of the most amazing drummers and so now that i'm looking it up on i was listening to it on spotify and i didn't really look at credits now that i'm looking it up on wiki i see that steve wilson and gavin harrison co-wrote that song so that makes total sense to me that it is sort of the drum feature on the album but the whole thing as you say is absolutely spectacular and i think talking about gavin harrison i i think part of why i love that bridge on herd culling you can hear his drumming he's a complex drummer but he doesn't overplay it he knows how to judge it just right so it's not over the top yep and so you can hear that he's definitely a virtuoso musician but he's not like a um i can never pronounce his last name um vinnie color oh that guy yeah that guy who just overplays everything you know (laughs) um he does Gavin Harrison knows when to rein it back and when to just let go. Yeah. And I think for me, that's what makes him one of the top five mm-hmm. currently active drummers in the world. I, I agree with you. And uh, he's got six songwriting credits on this album. So, I mean, I think that musically, this album is so good. And uh, I've absolutely loved what I've heard of it so far. So, uh, uh, other than the first couple of tracks, Harridan of the New Day, which is phenomenal, and Rat's Return. Um, I do like Herd Culling a lot. I think my next favorites would be uh, Chimera's Wreck, mm-hmm. which I think is amazing. And as you said, the the final track, Love in the Past Tense. You basically mm-hmm. like the two final tracks, the intended one being Chimera's Wreck, and yeah, then yeah, the bonus yeah. one being Love in the Past Tense. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I think what's so interesting about this is they recorded it in their own time. You know, over the last 13 years, Wilson time and time again said, Porcupine Tree is dead. It's never coming back. (laughs) Meanwhile, they were occasionally just putting ideas in a shared folder, uploading them, working on them on the side. Then the pandemic hits and they all have time to work on this and they actually go ahead and do it. And I think being able to work without anyone having any expectations of it without working to a labels deadline has really allowed them just to sit back and let everything breathe and mm-hmm. evolve naturally into mm-hmm. what it is. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's hugely successful and it, it might, I don't know where it ranks yet on my porcupine tree scale, but I think it's going to end up at, at least in the top half, if not near the the top of the list. 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at the bottom li- part of the list, it's nowhere near as bad as Lightbulb Sun. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think um, I think it's up there, very much so. Um, and it, it feels a lot more natural. Like, the, the last album, The Incident, felt a little forced to me. And Wilson mm. actually says that in his autobiography, that they should have taken time off after fear of a blank planet but they forced Mm. an album out they stretched one idea out to a 45 minute suite of songs Mm. that really he felt shouldn't have been that and by the end of that tour he was burnt out Mm -hmm. so i i really think because again this had time to breathe and evolve that's what makes it worthy of the upper part of the pantheon of porcupine tree albums right I don't know how much of a challenge it is to in absentia or dead wing, but I think mm-hmm. it's, I think it's close. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I definitely think it's close to those two plus fear of a blank planet, which I rate very, yeah. very highly. Yeah. Can I give feedback on a place? Yes, please do. So if you are Atlanta based, I would like to give a shout out to Grant Park Market, which is a, Basically, a, gro- uh, a small local grocery convenience store type place. But I walked in there yesterday to buy uh, some some popsicles, actually. And what was playing over the uh, the speakers was Kaylee by Marillion. No way. <laughs> and I've never heard that because I'm not I, I wasn't old enough in England for when it was actually getting airplay. In fact, I'm not sure I was even alive yet. Um, but... I've literally never heard it anywhere outside of my own playlists and an actual Marillion show. And I got talking to the guy behind the counter who was one of the managers and he was like, yeah, I I just put on like Jethro Tull radio and just let it play. And I'm like, dude, you have great music taste. I've walked in there before (laughs) and they've had New Order playing. They've had, um, you know, various 80s synth pop bands. They just have great music taste. So Go send them some business if you're in Atlanta. You'll listen to some great things while shopping there. That's awesome. All right. So <clears throat> let me jump into a little bit of uh, feedback that we got this week. And this is about our last episode, which was about our favorite record labels. Kevin Cafferty posted in one of the one of the Facebook groups that I posted the episode in. Uh, he wrote, my two favorite record labels, both defunct are Lookout and Sarah Records. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. Somebody, like, you know, took the mm-hmm. time to write that. But I was curious to know why. So I said, what is it about those two? How did you discover them? What is it that makes them special? And he wrote back, what made them my favorites was that both were labels run by one or two people who initially started the labels to showcase music that they felt was deserving of a wider audience. With Lookout, it was Lawrence Livermore and David Hayes showcasing the East Bay punk scene, their vision of punk rock that wasn't rooted in some of the dumb macho bullshit or destructive tendencies that were popular at the time, was huge for me, a nerdy kid who loved punk rock music. Lookout wound up having breakout success with Operation Ivy and especially Green Day, but the smaller bands, most notably Crimp Shrine, are my favorites. <clears throat> they were just as important to that label's identity. Like a lot of the great small indies, the label had an impressive hit to hit to miss ratio for a lot of its run. In the late 90s, things go glossier and less interesting. 
and managed to showcase a real idiosyncratic vision around its artwork and catalogs. Sarah Records was like that, only even more so. Matt and Claire were putting out records that ran entirely counter to what was successful in the UK at the time, were constantly derided in the British music press for being too twee, and mostly focused on seven-inch singles and vinyl during a time when that was considered commercial suicide. They put out a board game for one of their releases, inspired a ton of great fanzines, and put out the sort of records that felt like a whole world you could get lost in, romantic in every best sense to the word. So I think that's really awesome that someone took the time to actually write that much out, to share Mm -hmm. that much thought about their favorite record label. That's very cool. And if you're a fan of Sarah Records, uh, or if you're curious about it, there's a book called Pop Kiss, The Life and Afterlife of Sarah Records uh, by Mike White that sort of documents the label and everything they did. And uh, they were hugely influential in the C86 movement, which kind of started the Twee movement. Uh, C86 was this kind of like jangle pop thing that at the time kind of just went away. But it is still like we have Bell and Sebastian because of that now, right? And um, Camera Obscure and things like that. There was a really interesting label. And when you when you read the book, you sort of just realize how much of a fly by the seat of the pants thing it was. Lookout put out a lot of interesting records. Uh, they just never really had huge distribution. They were one of those labels that if you worked at a college radio station, you had to go out and buy their records because they couldn't, they wouldn't send them, right? That it was just a <laughs> nightmare trying. No, they just had the, you know, the budget. Um, it was a nightmare, try, at least in, in the Midwest, trying to get a lot of their records. And But when you got them, like, man, they were great. So. It's interesting, to, and recognizing I wasn't on the record label one, but talking about a label that was founded and really curated by one person, that always makes me think of Rough Trade. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I always admire that, like someone really pursuing it as their passion and not really selling out and continuing to yeah. you know, steward their style of music and, and curate. I enjoy that and I appreciate it. So that was great feedback. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. So Kevin Cafferty, thank you so much for sharing that that insight. And if anybody else is interested in uh, sharing some feedback on any of our episodes, we are willing to hear it. Bring it on. You can email us at modernmusicology1 at gmail.com or you can post it on any of the places that you find our episodes. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about this year's and past year's Glastonbury Festival. So we'll be back in 30 seconds. Don't go anywhere. In the Cosmic Pizza Podcast, your pizza delivery guys, Dan, Sean, and Paul, serve you a slice of life. We talk to women in comedy, voice actors, film directors and producers, authors. We also talk about conspiracy theories, the Muppets, our top three films of the decades, famous people we confuse with each other, and our favourite stand-up comedians. We have recast Star Trek the Original Series and Babylon 5, and created our alternative superheroes. But most of all, we have had so much fun doing it every two weeks. Two weeks! The Cosmic Pizza Podcast is not about the cosmos or about pizza. So, Glastonbury 2022 is over. And as we've sort of seen with festivals uh, in recent years, 
they are streaming. And if you don't go in person and get mud all over you <laughs> or stand in line to use the porta potty, you could watch them from home. Or and, live in a uh, different country. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, the great thing about Glastonbury is even though we do not live in England and can, can go readily, and maybe we don't want to be around that many people, uh, it is streaming. It was streaming. Uh, it was streaming much more easily available in the United Kingdom than here. Most yeah. of the uh, sets are available now through YouTube and through different uh, fan sites of the artists. But if you um, take that deep dive, you can call together some stuff or uh, use VPN if that is your thing. I, so I, I, I took the dive in and I sort of, there were a couple bands whose sets I really wanted to see and I did that. And then I went over um, to their website to look at who was playing. Now, Anthony's just going to chuckle, but I looked at it and I'm like, how many friggin' stages does this damn thing have? That was the first <laughs> thing, right? Then I'm watching it. And I, you know, I know the cultural history of Glastonbury a little bit, right? Um, I've seen, you know, other ones and stuff, but my God, maybe it's because we're coming out of a pandemic and no one's been to shows, but that's a lot of friggin' people. So, I mean, I don't think there's a place in Somerset that didn't have a person there during that. So I was just kind of gobsmacked by the sheer bulk and size and ambition of it. And the programming was interesting because obviously they had a lot of different genres uh, represented. They had um, a whole like social activism, like panels where they have debates mm -hmm. and stuff. And I'm like, what is this? So uh, it is endlessly fascinating. I like music festivals anyway, just to kind of the opportunities that they made. And this one did not disappoint it. That gave us a lot of really interesting moments and interesting things. But it also um, was one of those events where lots of different genres come together, lots of different artists that are old and new come together. And it's really a cultural, it's much more of a cultural institution than I thought it was. And I am, uh, when I watch it now, I feel amazingly old. So I did a quick count on the stages, and I think there were around 40 stages in total. Jeez. Which is bonkers. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't entirely know the lineup. So some of these, oh, wait, it might even be more. I, I gave up. There's it, tents and stuff for DJs and things. And then, yeah, I right, mean, some of it might be like off-site clubs and stuff like that. But right. yeah, there was a an enormous amount. It's crazy. Um, so I'm not sure quite how anyone would get to see everything they want to see, but um, yeah. Yeah. You got to pick your battles. Indeed. Which is the great thing about watching it virtually because it's there yeah. for you to watch whenever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Rob, what were some of your standouts? So, um, you know, I went into this kind of, you know, picking like 10 things I wanted to see and just kind of letting it see where, see where it went. Uh, the things that people are talking about, um, the Paul McCartney set with Bruce Springsteen and Dave Grohl, and then yeah. so he plays he plays this un ungodly like breakneck speed set, and then he's up till three in the morning partying um, at eighty years old. Paul McCartney yeah. is a force of nature. It was amazing. Um, it also emphasizes just how well people receive Dave Grohl around the world. Maybe I, he is I think far less uh, appreciated here than he is elsewhere. Uh, which I kind of didn't estimate. Um, and then a lot of these like sort of side uh, side hustles that people were doing, right? You had Mel C playing with Blossoms, 
doing a Spice Girls cover. You had uh, Phoebe Bridgers playing with the Jesus and Mary chain. Arlo Parks played with Phoebe Bridgers. You had, you know, lots of other people coming in on other people's sets and things. Lily Allen and uh, Olivia uh, Rodrigo. Um, that was cool. Um, and then, you know, the, the technology of it was interesting. I think the big thing that people are talking about is with McCartney, how his, uh, his new friend, Peter Jackson, took a, uh, basically just streamlined the audio and the video of Paul McCart of uh, John Lennon and from I Got a Feeling and just they played it behind him on a screen and obviously it had been rehearsed and, and practiced, but it was like as much as you can now watching McCartney and Lennon play together. And McCartney afterwards was like, I hadn't sang with this person in over 40 years and I was, you know, about ready to cry. I mean, you look at McCartney in it, he's got his back at the beginning and he said he had to turn his back to the audience because he was so emotionally just kind of freaked out about it. Um, so in that way, it's kind of an interesting nod to technology and where concerts are going. But there's a, yeah, there's a lot of stuff and it's old bands, new bands, up and coming bands. Um, it's really diverse. And I tried to watch a little bit of everything. I didn't see much of the jazz stuff just because it wasn't really easy to get. But uh, yeah, yeah, the only the only bit of the, the jazz stuff that I saw was uh, some of Herbie Hancock's. Set. Yeah, which was still oh, phenomenal. Oh, it was so good. Yeah. Oh, holy smokes. That Paul McCartney show, though, <clears throat> 38 songs. He's 80 years old and he nice. did 38 songs. And um, just a range of stuff in his set. And he did a lot of Wings songs, which I'm a huge fan of McCartney and Wings. So anytime that Wings gets included significantly in his set list, I am thrilled. And, you know, he always does like the live and let die and, and you know, that kind of thing. But he, he worked some stuff in that really hadn't been done in a while, like Letting Go and Junior's Farm and stuff like that. And I was really excited to see that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was such a career retrospective because he even did something yep. from The Quarrymen. He did. That's right. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. No one would have expected that. Right. Yeah. And it was very much um, an underscoring of like, hi, I'm Paul McCartney. Exclamation point, you know, underline, underline. Um, it was... I don't want to say career defining because he's Paul McCartney, but it kind of was. Yeah. It was certainly a career retrospective. It definitely yeah. was. And to the point of, and this is something that's been going on the whole tour, including songs by the other Beatles and his sets. Yeah. He's and, been doing and, that for a while. and highlighting uh, those other guys in, in new ways. And I'm, I'm really, really love that. Yeah. When we saw him a couple of years ago, when yeah. he does uh, something, he mentions that the ukulele is George Harrison's ukulele. Yeah. And he talks about them a little bit, um, you know, and he talks about Lennon a little bit. And it's, it's, it sounds very genuine, very sincere and very somber when he does it. And this was much more euphoric because when he has the, uh, the Lennon playing with him, it was like, wow. And it makes you think, too, the what, if, the what if thing, you know, is this the thing? Is this the kind of thing we would have seen Lennon and McCartney at? What would Live Aid look like? You know, mm -hmm. all these different things rush into your head when you see stuff like that. Yeah. But I also um, was thrilled to see so many songs from Wings, Wings in there, many of which I hadn't heard live before at all. Yeah. And right. I hope that people walk away from that going out and tracking down Wings records. That's my that's my hope from that. Yeah. Well, sure. I can recommend some of them to them. 
<laughs> I, I love I when I grew up, um, I was sort of at that like teenage years when Wings was happening. So I always say I, I kind of miss the Beatles yeah. thing. We, the uh, you know the whole Wings experience was my Beatles. Yeah, because I I you know Paul McCartney and I knew the other guys, but I I mainly knew them as solo yeah. artists. And then the other the other two or three things I was really excited about. Obviously, I was excited about Idols and, and Fontaine's DC, uh, who I love. But uh, the Diana Ross set, you know, was just friggin' amazing. I don't know Diana Ross. The last time she toured and came through town, it was a hot mess. I don't know who who she got to tighten it up, but that 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 ain't happening now. It's like on point, and it's it's phenomenal, right? Well. And I, 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 the stuff that I watched, though, I, I just didn't. I mean, okay, she's McCartney is eighty; she's seventy-eight. I just don't think she's really got the voice anymore. No, she doesn't. She, you, you go to see her because she's Diana Ross, right? But for her to play at that, I mean, McCartney can play that kind of a thing all the time because he's Paul McCartney, and he his his voice is aged well enough that he he adapts to what he can say. Yeah, um, she has just been. The last two or three tours, uh, so amazingly awful that like it's a surprise. I mean, wow. I know people, wow. I know, don't pull your no, punches, no. right? I know. I, I have friends of mine who are huge Diana Ross fans, right? That are just like, "What is this? Where where has this been for fifty years?" Right? Hmm. Um, and it is just so. It's just such a far left hand turn for her and for with her career, even though her voice is not what it was. Um, it's great for her because like the, the, the time I saw her when she came to town was just absolutely disappointing. Um, and I'm just, you know, you like to see someone who's got that much of a legacy do a set where they get their sort of due. Um, yeah, it was, that was, that was way better than I thought because it's kind of like you go in with low expectations and you're blown away. Um, that type of thing. And had she not played the same weekend as Paul McCartney, We'd be talking about that more, probably. Um, mm-hmm. The other, the other set that was amazing, just in terms of it being a visual and a visual spectacle, and also because the way the set list was done, it was just banger, 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 banger. Um, the Pet Shop Boys did their Dream World set, a condensed version of that. Yeah, and that whole tour has been like just getting all kinds of raves. But that uh, transferring that sort of club small stadium venue show to Glastonbury. Um, with the technical glitches that they had that still pulled it off um, yeah. was amazing. Yeah. That was high energy. Yeah. That was what I saw of it was, was really good. I was yeah. very surprised. Although I didn't, well, never mind. I was going to say, I didn't <laughs> think Neil sounded that great, but he, didn't so, sound, he sounded like his voice in, pl- in a couple places. He sounded like his voice was hoarse. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you can't help that. I mean, yeah. you know, when Bowie did his show in 2000, he was, if I remember rightly, getting over a laryngitis mm-hmm. episode. So, you know, that, that stuff happens. Not a big deal. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to give a shout out to Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds. That was also yeah. very good. Yeah. Because, Playing before McCartney, which is kind well, of scary. And also, if you think about it, the Beatles were not the Beatles. Oasis were labeled as the successor to the mm-hmm. Beatles in the 90s. So I thought that was pretty cool to start with someone who idolized mccartney and have him run into it and his attitude of i'm gonna play seven songs that you don't care about (laughs) and then 
and then a bunch of oasis songs i i, I just kind of love how he knew what people yeah. were there for oh yeah and he was like yeah. eh, you know you're gonna have to listen to my solo shit and then you'll get what you want right and and that was a really be. funny attitude and how he yeah. knew like <laughs> and he's gonna be insufferable now because mccartney was watching him from the side yeah you know the, so he's gonna be more insufferable now but that's well, okay He's been insufferable ever since Manchester City started yeah, winning the yeah. league year in, year oh, out. God, like, yeah. Shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> the other band, I've only seen one track from the footage, so I want to see the rest, but um, I'm always excited to see Skunk and Nancy. Oh, my oh God, I was just so going to bring them up. That was oh, so man. good. They were yeah. awesome. Um, so I, I've seen the video from Hedonism. Yeah. Um, I want to track down the entire set because I've, I've always loved them and candidly to have them so far down on the other stage, mm. disappointing. I mean, I think very, very highly of them. They should have been headlining that day instead of making a stallion, <laughs> but no one else would agree, which is probably why they were not. But from what I've, what I've seen, Skin has absolutely, you know, kept her voice. She was nailing it. Mm -hmm. uh, the rest of the band, um, Ace and, uh, and so on looked really good mark wilkinson etc so yeah very very excited to see the rest of that set i really enjoyed yeah. what i saw of it i really enjoyed and so skin the lead singer is somebody that so i wasn't really aware of that band for a while and i only know her from and i can't remember what documentary it was but she was one of the talking heads in a documentary that i saw recently and i thought she's the coolest person i've ever seen yeah. And I just kind of like was drawn to her. So yeah. I went looking for Skunk Anansi um, to see if I could find stuff. And I did. And man, were they great. They're yeah. so fucking good. I've, yeah. I remember them doing like a rocked up version of Teenage Kicks at the Brit Awards in, I think, 97. Oh, I've got to and, find that. Oh, it's on YouTube. It's pretty, oh, it's pretty it. easy to find. But um yeah. You know, it was like, a, a, and they had like someone on a rack. It was very BDSM. I'm surprised it went out on nice. ITV or whatever it was. But um, yeah, <laughs> they're phenomenal. I've loved them for 25-ish years. By uh, this I've point. had this 25-year-old argument with people of that, you know, they were like five times better than the Prodigy, but way more underappreciated. Um, <laughs> so it's nice to see this validation. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd say they're a different they're a different beast to the prodigy. They really yeah, are. But they, uh, but I mean, they, they, but they, their, their records came out roughly the same time. And like yeah. when I was working radio, they were they when they were, worked Skunk and Nancy, and you got the little one sheet from the label. It would be like they're recommended if you like Prodigy, right? And they were calling stations. Oh, you're playing the Prodigy record. Why not? You're playing that. You know, it's like come on. I feel guys. like no, you have records. like they have like that similar edgy punky energy. Yeah. But musically, they're quite different. Oh, yeah. They're very much. But the attitude, I think, and the aesthetic are similar. Um, yeah. The other thing I liked, and it's not because it's Jarvis Cocker, but first of all, he was on, like, the smallest little platform on the stage. I don't know how he didn't fall off. But he actually <laughs> went down uh, off the stage. He, he basically did a Bono and Livey that went down off the stage and got right in front of that fr front rack. And uh, you watch him do it, and you're like, Jesus, there's a ton of people, right? Yeah. Um, and that was coming out of the pandemic. That was kind of like very freeing just to sort of see an artist like go back into an audience again. Cause I haven't seen an artist do it since the pandemic. I'm sure they have. I just haven't seen it cause I'm old. Um, 
and he was he was playing the park stage which is like the fifth mm-hmm. stage yeah. and he was on after jack white i'm uh, looking at it thinking this is the fifth stage and you've got jack white followed by jarvis cocker right yeah only that, at glastonbury that could that jack, be on the fifth fucking stage exactly right that jack white version of seven nation army though it really that was so that. good that oh, it really emphasized that guitar riff, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was mm-hmm. like, hey, this is my riff, right? Um, which but at this point we were all kind of like, okay, it's that song. But that song got a whole new breath of life. Yeah. Out, out of Glastonbury. Um, I still love that song. I do too. I mean, I I'm love not the a big White Jack White fan, but I don't I like do his solo it. stuff, but I still love the White Stripes. And yeah. um, but I really, I really thought that, that set was much more energetic than I expected it to be. Yeah, yeah. Um so I've got a couple of things that really stood out for me. Um, Phoebe Bridgers. Yes. Who's, who's, you know, we talked about her before that she's somebody who it can either go way too mellow and, and sometimes it does. So I always, you know, wonder how she's going to fare at a show this big. But, you know, what I saw, I really enjoyed um, Glass Animals. Man, they were so fun. Really enjoyed them. But that's somebody that I've kind of like had a passing love for for a while now but i gotta tell you the one that i saw that i think had the best crowd energy was wet leg yes holy smokes they were also so good on the fifth stage yeah 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 and but they the, yeah that, that crowd was eating it up they're yeah i discovered a couple of um acts that i hadn't well other than skunk and nancy this is really my first time seeing them there were a couple other things that i discovered there's a guy called sam fender and i found a song called 17 going under and really really loved that it's a it's a little bit more like you know generic rock kind of thing which is you know totally my wheelhouse um but i really enjoyed that and then there's a guy called aj tracy who i've heard the name before but i mm-hmm. hadn't heard anything from and i found the song called Ladbroke Grove, um, which was a really sort of like up-tempo, really dancey rap kind of thing. Very, very catchy. And I, th- I thought he was fantastic. Yeah, Sam Fender's kind of come out of nowhere. I mean, you yeah. know, he's, I don't know, I think he's like 28, 29. And yeah, he's he's a young dude. In the last three years, he's had two albums that have gone to number one in the UK. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, I, I think that's really impressive. He seems to be kind of one of the... Uh, the darlings of uk rock right now right yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really liking him so i'm gonna look for more from him and you know the another one that i saw that i thought was great was heim yes they're amazing man they they just came out in these little like halter tops and they they were like just ate up the fact that it's summer and they're on a big stage and had a great band with them and just had a ball with it and they were so good i uh i love phoebe bridgers but her Sing, her song with the Jesus and Mary chain was kind of clunky and weird because yeah. she basically just kind of stood around on the stage and then kind of came up and sang the chorus of Just Like Honey and then went back to the side of the stage and it was yeah. kind of weird. But I, <laughs> I yeah, um, but she's a, she's terrific. And I really liked Suzanne Vega's set more than I thought I would too. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, she was much Ooh. better. Her and Casey Musgrove were both much better than I had expected. Casey, um, yeah, Kay, okay, so that, that sort of brings up to me the number of acts that, so Glastonbury happened immediately after the overturn of Roe versus Wade here in America, and I am surprised at the number of artists 
that address that, not just American artists, but British ones too, that address that and made it, you know, sort of a focus of their message from stage. And I was like, I was really surprised. And Casey Musgraves as a country artist, you know, she, I mean, speaking out on liberal matters almost ruined the Dixie Chicks career for a long time. So she's mm-hmm. really taken a risk by coming out and talking about stuff. Yeah. And her dis- disapproval of stuff. Yeah, I know. But at the time, they were the Dixie Chicks. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, and Sorry, what was fascinating to me, um, you know, the, and I don't mean to get too political on the show, but yeah. being in England when mm. Roe versus Wade was overturned, the number of my British friends who've spent little time at all in the States, who, when I saw them said, what the fuck is going on in your country, <laughs> was astounding. Virtually everyone said that. So I'm not yeah. overly surprised to hear that okay. the British artists were speaking out because mm. I, I think America, you know, has been the global superpower of the last 75-ish years. Yeah, yeah. And when something like that happens, it tends to reverberate around the Western world. So at a at a festival as high profile as Glastow, yeah. yeah. You know, to have artists both American and British coming out and saying stuff, not overly surprised by it. Um okay. and it has a history of being somewhat political too before, but just Oh yeah. But this was like Hello. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's always been pretty much hand in hand with Greenpeace. Um, yeah. You know, a few years ago, Jeremy Corbyn, who was the leader of the British Labour Party, gave a speech at Glastonbury and had the entire crowd by the end of it chanting to the tune of Seven Nation Army, Oh, Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> um, sadly, he, he, he failed to win an election after that. So the yeah. power of Glastonbury did not help him. But. <laughs> You know, it's it's definitely got a, a history of of being fairly uh, liberal in its politics. Sure, I have a little bit of a confession, and that is Glastonbury happened while I was in the UK, and I got back on Wednesday. So between catching up at work, trying to get over jet lag, etc., I haven't had a chance to watch as much as I would like to, and I don't think as much as the two of you have. Mm. So I wanted to give some shout outs to who I'm looking forward to checking out over the next few days. Oh, excellent. <laughs> so aside from who we've already mentioned, I'm looking forward to checking out Crowded House. Oh, my oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I yes. absolutely oh my God, love Crowded great. House. That was so yeah. good. Yeah. Um, Supergrass, because they're always fun. Yes. I saw Even if they're one, one of the lesser Britpop bands. I saw one of the Supergrass songs and it was so great. I'm curious to see the Libertine set because this is one of the things I was going to bring up was that the amount of like, it's, it's like they listened to our podcast on Britpop and booked all these yeah. sort of Britpop bands, right? <laughs> that this, this idea that Brit, like Primal Scream and the Libertines and all these bands of like that sort of Britpop era still hugely popular. Yeah. And, and the and Libertines, so- I was, was, I'm not going to read it for you at all. Oh well, I'm, I'm curious about that because you know, I was uh, 17, 18 in 2005 when they were at their height and every show that they played was an absolute shit show because yes. Pete Doherty was so off his face. Yes. Mm. So I haven't seen anything of their shows since they've sobered up. And I'm pretty curious as to how they actually are when they have a sober Pete Doherty in the band. 
Um, <laughs> so very, very curious to see that one. Looking forward to seeing the Pet Shop Boys. Rob, your glowing endorsement of that makes it sound fantastic. Well, to be fair, I am a little obsessed. So I'm not necessarily... I know you are. Yeah. I know you are. Uh, we, we know you're a special case with the Pet Shop Boys. Yeah, but um, just in terms of visual presentation, yeah. And I think, I think the Libertines, though, when I saw that, I got really excited because, like you, I've never seen them put this shit together. And the two times I've seen them were just escapades in like horror right yeah. so I, I really want them to have a proper musical send-off so to speak i forget whether it was them or one of their like continuation bands baby shambles or um oh, or the other one but they did a cover of suede's um the the drowners that was just terrible <laughs> so that's out there on youtube if you want to see what a shit show truly looks like find yeah. it um, the other one I'm excited to check out is Charlie XCX because I'm a big fan of hers. I think she is a fascinating mm -hmm. artist uh, who has really great stage presence. So hoping that that's out there to take a look at. Because that I've... set was good. She did, um, what was the last big streaming festival thing? She played that too. And that set was really great too. Yeah, uh, she's a, she's really good. Coachella, like her set at Coachella was great, right? Um, yeah. And she just, you know, she really knows how to work an audience. And I think that um, she really worked her audience in a lot of ways that other artists there didn't. Um, yeah. Because I think a lot of these people are like, yeah, we can say hi and do our thing and get out. They don't necessarily feel like they have to work it. But she was working it. And I thought that was great. And what's pretty cool about her and, and a lot of these artists is they do more or less full sets. Right. Yeah. So you think of festivals and you think of bands coming on and doing five songs and then they, they leave and someone yeah. else comes on and does five songs. <laughs> like Charlie XCX had 19 songs. You know, you yeah. mentioned McCartney Damn. had like 35-ish. Like Skunk and Nancy were around the 15 song mark. You know, these wow. these bands all have full sets at Glastow, yeah. which is, yeah. I think, really cool. Yeah, mm -hmm. I wish I would have gotten to see uh, the some of the Waterboys or some of Paul Heaton and uh, with his hmm. set, and um, I, I love watching the Avalanches set, even though they're DJ stuff. And I, I want to really, check that one out. I really am curious about the Fat Boy Slim set too, because I don't think I've heard him really do much of anything lately. And it was mostly a DJ set, but um, he's just kind of been away for so long that um, I'm excited by that. There was some interesting bands on the Avalon stage, which I think is like the seventh or eighth stage. Um, <laughs> excited to see what Reef did. Yeah. Um, the Hoosiers. Um, yeah, I remember them. And even Sugar Babes, who, you know, I meant, I think I gave them a shout out when we did the Girl Bands episode. Yeah. But their, you know, their original lineup has reunited and they were always yeah. an interesting one. So I'm curious as to how they sound these days. The, I, the other I've come across a lot of people talking about that Sugar Babe set. So I haven't seen any of this. So I'm going to go looking for it tonight. Yeah, the other one I'm kind of curious about is the TLC set too. I didn't oh, what that. I saw of it was yeah. a lot of fun. I didn't, I didn't get to see that yet. I oh, yeah. I saw a couple of things and they really did a good job. Do y'all have any, any Glasto memories? Any standouts from previous shows uh the verve set from i think 2008 or so was pretty great uh which surprised me because the verve were not known for being a really good live band <laughs> um that was surprisingly good and um for me it's always been kind of a way to 
check in on bands that I need to know about that mm, I might yeah. have heard or haven't, you know. Yeah. Uh, and now that there's YouTube, it's a great way to sort of find, like, for instance, there's a band that played this year called Girl in Red that I've listened to and and played on the radio, and but I've never seen their sets or, and I really want to check them out more. Um, so for me, it's always been a way to check artists out. Um, and I'm always interested in the legacy artists playing, you know, just yeah. people that are, oh, yeah. to see what they do on a bigger stage. Absolutely. I always remember 2004. So that year you had the headliners were Paul McCartney, Oasis, and Muse. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And then the other kind of big name bands that played that year included uh, James Brown, Kings of Leon, Morrissey before everyone realized what a dick he is, <laughs> Scissor Sisters, Franz Ferdinand, and Goldfrapp. I mean, that was like a top yeah. tier wow. lineup year. And I remember that, 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 that Scissor Sister set sort of really put them on a radar for a lot oh, yeah. of people. Yeah. I mean, they, they'd been pretty big in the UK from about 2001, but that 2004 yeah. set was huge. Yeah. And then, of course, the other one um, is 2000. Of, of course. You know, Bowie. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was, and that, that consistently tops like lists of the greatest Glastonbury performances ever. It's like consistently the, the top pick. And it was basically, I don't know. He had to have done 30 songs in that show. And it was basically a greatest hits show, which he hadn't done in like a decade because he had spent that past 10 years doing Tin Machine and doing his mm -hmm. drum and bass stuff and his, you know, electronics and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff and really wasn't doing anything but his past catalog and then comes out on in Glastow and just does this like every hit he's ever had in one set and just yeah. blew people away. And that's sort of it's become the template now for a lot of these like yeah. greatest hit tours that people do in the UK or when they do a festival and they do hits. Bowie's kind of the template, whether it's intentional or not. That's kind of where we are. Well, I think, you know, when you are asked to headline a festival as big as Glastonbury, and let's not forget the audience back then, which is smaller than it is today, was yeah. 100,000 people. <laughs> right. You know, and you're being broadcast across the nation on the BBC. Yep. You pull out your greatest hits. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, also that year as one of the other headliners and probably the biggest show they ever played and ever will play was Travis. You know, it's kind of a bit of a damp squib after Bowie, but <laughs> it is what it is. Sorry, I can't resist throwing a bit of shade at Travis because they're just one of the most <laughs> boring bands on the planet. <laughs> um, a couple of ones, you know, there used to be a, a cable, sh uh, cable network called Palladium. And I think it changed names to something else, but it was basically just a live music channel. I remember that channel, yeah. Oh my God, I loved it. I remember one time I was homesick for days and I just put it on and just saw show after show of whatever performer they had. And it was just amazing. But um, a couple of performances, like full sets that I saw on Palladium was uh, the 2014 Dolly Parton set, which mm. was amazing. And you just don't think that a legacy country Western artist, even though Dolly is an icon, you just don't think of that in terms of Glastow. And she just came out and those people fucking loved her and knew every word to every song. And it was so great. And I remember seeing the 2017 Foo Fighters show, which was really just a powerhouse of a show. I also remember, I, 
I worked with someone who went to Glasgow in 2008, and this is talking about oh. legacy artists. And he said Leonard Cohen oh. was phenomenal. Wow. He wasn't, yeah, one, yeah. He wasn't familiar with Leonard Cohen, but he described it as, you know, you knew you were in the presence of an absolute legend. Yeah, when wow. I saw Leonard Cohen, he played three hours and 20 minutes, and he was like almost 80. And yeah. it is still staggeringly like probably the second best show I've ever seen. Wow. What's the first spot? Uh, Johnny Cash. Um, <laughs> On his first his first set of, uh, first set after the American recording, it was um, CMJ one year, and he played two and a half hours, and he had June with him. Got it. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good one. Yeah, and the Pogues are probably there. But yeah, I think overall, you know, those are some of the highlights from the past. I mean, I, the thing with Glasgow is it's always such a wonderful uh, blend of musicians that really cross genres and cross age groups and decades and generations it's fascinating I, I think they pull it off in a way that Lollapalooza and Coachella and all those festivals somehow miss the mark on too uh, I'm not sure what it is maybe it's the history of it but the way they put all their artists together is just it works so much better than other festivals I think it's partly that and I'm gonna kind of brag on my home country a bit but i think there's that kind of quirky british mentality to it of mm. you know we just want to see a good show and we don't really care if you're seeing wu-tang clan after two-door cinema club <laughs> yeah. you know if they're both coming out and they're putting a great show on we don't yeah. care we just want to see a great show yeah I, I kind of agree with that yeah i'm curious to see how many artists stay how many people stay for bands that they haven't seen before and how many new audiences bands get. Cause I imagine that there is a huge audience for, um, of people that are like, well, I haven't heard this band, but they're in between the two bands I want to see. And so like how much ex exposure to new audiences do these artists get? I think it's like any festival, right? If you're interested in Herbie Hancock and Elbow, I mean, that's a pretty odd group, but you've never heard Diana Ross. This is getting even stranger guys. <laughs> um, you're not going to want to lose your spot. So you're going right. to stand through Diana Ross. Absolutely. <laughs> and if and you you're going to enjoy Herbie it. Hancock and Elbow, and you do not know who Diana Ross is or have never heard Diana Ross, we need to have a talk. Please email us. I guess <laughs> a right. more appropriate one would be if you if you were there for the Crowded House and waiting on Plant and Krauss, you're going to stand through Wolf Alice. That's probably a more appropriate one. Mm -hmm. Perfect. I love helpful. that. I love that. All right, so that's our show on Glastonbury. I can't wait for next year's. Maybe I'll get to go. Glastonbury is one of those bucket list things that I know I'll never get to do, but you know, I'd still Let's love do to it at some point. Let's do it. Field Road trip, trip next, next year. year. Well, plane trip. <laughs> that's why um, I said field trip. Right. So, gentlemen, so theoretically, we have listeners, and theoretically, they are looking to find more of us on the internet. So, Anthony, where can people find you? As always, you can find me on the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension podcast. We are watching our way through all of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. We have recently put out our episode on the Deaths of the Daleks, which is from season 11, 1974, John Pertwee's final season. You can find us on um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, etc., etc., wherever you like to get your podcast, wherever you're listening to this, this podcast, even. 
Um, and you can also check us out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at watches 4 d All right, Rob. Uh, you can find me uh, with needcoffee.com and the Weekend Justice Marathon podcast and also uh, weekly on KDHX radio uh, from 7 to 9 Central. However, if you're doing something else that night, you can listen to the archive stream. All the shows are archived for two weeks, and you can check that out at kdhx.org. Killer. You can find my other podcast, Earth Station Trek, which is all about Star Trek, on all of the places that Anthony mentioned just a few seconds ago. And you can look for my publishing company, Cosmic Press, at CosmicPress.com or on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. All right. So we will be back next week with another show. And for now, thanks for listening. Have a great week. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. <laughs>